I'm going to bring a word this morning I'm really excited about, and it's going to be on friendship. And um, I've really enjoyed, uh, in the last year, as I've been learning this preaching thing, and you guys have all gotten the experience of sitting through it with me, um, I've really enjoyed just getting in the Word and finding a story that speaks to a theme and just unfolding that story together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to talk about a story of friendship in Scripture. And first, I want to start with a key verse that I had on my mind that really brought this forward for me um, in my time of just praying with the Lord about what to talk about this morning. And I want to share that first. And, and this verse is Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. And if you've got your Bibles, you can open them with me this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And this is a verse uh, that we normally hear actually at weddings, um, but I just want to speak clearly. It, it does apply to weddings very well and to marriage very well, but it's for all of us. It's, it's not specifically just for marriage. It's for everyone. And this is what Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if, e- if either of them falls... The one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. He's saying caution to anyone who's doing life alone and there's no one else to help pick him up when he falls down. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Okay, now there's where it talks about marriage. That was a a joke. That was a joke. Okay. (laughs) If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Amen. So the story today I want to talk about is going to be out of 1 Samuel. So if you've got your Bibles, open them to 1 Samuel. Try to follow along with me this morning. We're going to kind of move through the book in some different parts. And I just want to share this story that's really fascinated me. In my life as a believer, every time I've dug into it, I've just so enjoyed, honestly, the drama of it, um, the, the turns and the ups and the downs of it. I've really enjoyed this story in First Samuel. So um, if you've got your Bibles, open them with me, and we're going to kind of go through some of it. And then when I'm done, I'm going to make a few reflection points. And I say that so that we can just be prepared to know that, hey, at the end of this, we're going to have a little time to talk over some of this and reflect on what's happening in this story. So here it goes. Buckle up. So in 1 Samuel, here's the context. God has established a system of rulership for his covenant nation, which is Israel. And these rulers that he had put in place were called judges. And they ruled the people on behalf of God with really God as their supreme leader. God was the king of the people. They had no king at this time. And, and the judges were ruling and the people would follow them along with elders. Does that make sense? So, so God was the king. They had no president. They had no queen. They had no king. It was God. He was the main man. The buck stopped with him. Uh, and God set it up that way intentionally. Because the Israelites, if you know any Bible history, were in uh, this circular pattern of falling into sin and idolatry and leaving the Lord, and then something would happen wrong, they'd be taken into captivity, they'd get the result of their sin. 
they would come running back to God. See, they were in this cycle over and over again. Because they were in this cycle, let me just say, for the 350 years that Israel was ruled by judges, things were pretty turbulent for them. So if you think about American history, right? Um, 1776, we declared our independence. And then we come to 2023 now, right? So where, what are we at here? Rough math, 250 years. Is that right? Yeah. I shouldn't do math up here. It's a bad idea. But we're at about 250 years. So, so they had judges as rulers for 350 years. So this was a pretty long period for a nation to abide within a certain structure without a radical change. But at, at the end of these 350 years, the people were tired. They had Samuel at that time as their judge, and he would be the last judge of Israel. And the people were getting a little exhausted with this cycle of falling away from the Lord. And, and instead of looking inward, and this is a first good lesson for us, I think, instead of looking inward and saying, hey, there's a problem with us, we are not following God, they looked around him and they said, hey, the nations around us seem to have peace. They seem to be defeating us in every war. Why don't we just get a king like them? So when uh, Samuel was at the end of his life, the elders came to him. He was a pa- about to pass the role of judge onto his sons. And the elders from all the different tribes came to him and said, hey, the people want a king. We're ready to change this thing up. Now, Samuel, if you can imagine, was a bit offended by this idea. Now, he had been the ruler, but the highest ruler that there was as a person for some time now, through through his whole life, he ruled for many years, and the people were saying, coming to him and saying, hey, you're not cutting it, and we want to change the whole system. So Samuel was pretty upset when this happened, when they came to him, and uh, but nevertheless, he honored their request and took it to God. And he said, God, the people want a king. And I have to imagine if you're Samuel, you've got to be thinking there, all right, I'll go pray about it, right? I'll go ask God what he wants to do, thinking, you know, God doesn't want a king. God is our king. And he goes to the Lord, and I just imagine Samuel's surprise when God says, give them a king. Give them their king. They're asking for it. Give it to them. And, and I want to read this verse because it's just an interesting context of it all. Of this is what the Lord said to Samuel. And this is where you see that Samuel was probably a little bit offended that the people were asking for a different type of rulership. And this is for Samuel 8, 7 through 9. Uh, this is God's reply to his prayer. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, which he's referring to um, the freedom from captivity that the Israelites had in Egypt. So even even from them up to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they're doing to you also, Samuel. That's what God's saying. They've forsaken me, Samuel. Now they're forsaking you too, but give them what they want. That's what God says. And then God just finally said to them, Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So 
First Samuel verse chapter eight, excuse me, chapter eight, it, the, the rest of that is, is Samuel going and saying, Hey, God said, yes, you can have your king, but I just got to warn you. This is what God said. If you have a king, things are not going to be as good as you think, right? The grass is always greener on the other side as we know. And he tells them, Hey, if you have a king, he's going to um, put your kids in his military. You're gonna, you're gonna grow your fields, and instead of taking the return for it yourself, you're gonna have to pay taxes, and that's gonna go to the king. I mean, he's, he's gonna have you planting his fields now. And, and they, they heard the whole warning. He went through many, many things. And still in the end, the Israelite elders said, we still want a king. So God said yes. And, uh, and gave them that king. So what happens from there? First Samuel chapter nine is through a divine connection. God brought a man named Saul to Samuel and told Samuel to anoint Saul as king of Israel. Are we tracking now? Everybody doing all right? So we've got it. The Israelite people, God's chosen people. They don't have a king. They have judges. People say we want a king. God says, give them the king. Just warn them. This isn't going to go very well. All right? And then here comes um, a man named Saul. Saul will be the first king of Israel. And, you know, a, a few things happened right away when, when Samuel anointed Saul as the king of Israel that are kind of interesting and I, and I just want to point to. And I'm, I'm still doing a little setup for the story here. But Saul became king. And the people didn't necessarily have a lot of confidence in him right away, if you think about it. But here's what he did have going for him. He was kind of like me. He Essentially, the scripture says that he was tall, dark, and handsome. He's a good-looking guy, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Everyone, it, it was just one of those things where people could look at him and say, ah, that looks like a king. You know what I mean? Olivia's smiling over here. Thank you, honey. Everyone else is laughing. But he was, he was tall in stature and a good looking man, but inside, he was, he was kind of a timid guy. Actually, an interesting story, and I'm not gonna go through all of it, but when, when it came time for the people to come and celebrate, hey, we got a king, um, and, and put him on the throne, and probably crown him, right? What, what do they call that when you set in a king? A coronation, thank you. When they were gonna have his coronation, they got to the party and everyone was like, wait, where's Saul? Where is he? And someone said, um, I, I think he's over hiding by the, the luggage. And he was. He was actually hiding. So pretty timid guy, even though he looked like he kind of had the whole package. The good thing about Saul right away is that Saul did grow in confidence as a leader. And right away from the beginning, he was submitted to the Lord. Every time he had, every time that he had something arise, he would go to Samuel and he'd say, Samuel, what should I do? Samuel would pray to the Lord, come back and say, hey, the Lord said this. So really, in a sense, things at the very beginning were going okay for Saul. Things were going all right. Uh, there's, there's then a story, and we're kind of progressively moving through 1 Samuel, a story where um, the Ammonite people had come and attacked Israel. And, and it was Saul's first chance to really gather the people together. They had a common enemy then, right? And he gathered an army. They went up and they and they beat on those Ammonites. They had victory. And man, from that day forward, there's an interesting verse there where people said, "Hey, where? Let's go get everyone 
who said it would not be a good idea to have Saul as king and let's kill him because he's such a good king. Uh, strange? Yes, strange. But like that just demonstrates how much confidence the people had started to have in Saul. And that was really at the point where they said, hey, now we need to build Saul a palace and really have a spot for his reign to be centralized. Am I making sense this morning? So as his fame and popularity were starting to grow, his confidence was growing. The problem with that and the same risk that we would have in our lives is we start achieving the things that God might have for us individually because God really did set Saul in as king. Things can start to change in our heart. Things can start to get to our head a little bit, right? And when we have power and we have fame and we have prosperity, Man, things can kind of start to change in our head to where we can say to ourselves, you know, I think I'm doing pretty good here. And Saul must have started having some of those thoughts of, hey, I'm, I'm a pretty good king. The people are liking me. They're following me. My prosperity is growing. And the most simple way I can say this, and, and it really is an understatement, things were getting to Saul's head a little bit. And, and then not just to his head, but they were getting to his heart. And, and Saul started to depend on himself and the way that he was ruling the people of Israel. And so at that time, man, Israel was flying high. I mean, they were doing great. They had defeated one of their biggest enemies in battle. And they were ready for just generations of great kingship. Everyone was like, we made the right choice. We got our king. From there, in Saul's confident moment, Samuel had come to Saul and said, Saul, it's time for you to go and attack your biggest enemy. All right. You're going to go to the Philistines and attack them. So Saul took, um, Saul took 2000 men for himself. It says, and then another thing happened where at this part of the story, we see Saul's son introduced and Saul's son is going to be a key part of this story. His name was Jonathan. Can everyone say Jonathan? Jonathan. If you know any Johnnies, here's the first representation in history, I believe, that we see this name. Their, their name came down from Jonathan. Jonathan enters the story here. So Saul takes 2,000 troops, 2,000 strong men. Jonathan takes 1,000. And they go and they find this Philistine garrison, this group of troops, and they catch them by surprise, and man, do they whack them. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a profound victory. The problem was, when they had this victory, they kind of set off the Philistines. Let me tell you what it was like a little bit, in the best way that I can represent it. Who here has seen the movie The Avengers? Okay, come on. A few people. All right, so in The Avengers... There's a point late in the movie, and it's about to get to that big battle scene that you want to see in a movie like that with superheroes. And, and this character, Loki, he's, he came to Earth to like establish his rule on Earth and to make Earth his planet that he was going to lead. The problem was there were these superheroes, the Avengers, that were going to stand up to him. But Loki was really winning all the way through the movie, and he had this thing called a tesseract. And essentially what it was, he was going to use this tesseract, this powerful substance, to open a portal into space. And through the portal, his army was going to come and defeat 
the superheroes and the people on earth and establish his rule. Make sense? So I'm, I'm telling the story because of this. If you remember the movie, there was like a moment where the portal opened. Loki successfully opened his portal and his troops start flying in, these creepy looking aliens. And at first, the Avengers are there. They're fighting them. They're having some real success, right? And they're feeling good, like, all right, we can win this war. And then suddenly, these massive ships, just covered in these alien warriors, just start coming through the portal. And there's this moment in the movie where it's like, okay, this is a little bigger than we expected. Like, this is a little bit of a bigger fight. That's what this moment was like, sort of, for Saul. He, they had their victory over the Ammonites, feeling good. Had their victory over this uh, Philistine garrison, feeling good. But at that moment, they really ticked off the Philistines by doing that. And the Philistines were coming in full force. And at that moment, Saul's response was he just tucked his tail between his legs and he headed for the caves. And his all his troops were hiding they're all in this, they're all in what's called a strait. It's, it's this area with lots of caves. There were bushes. To hide. I mean, they were all hiding. Now, at the start of this um, attack, Samuel had told Saul, Saul, you go attack the Philistines. In seven days, I'm going to come and I'm going to offer a sacrifice and a peace offering. In seven days, I'm going to come and do it. And when I do that, out of the power that God's going to put behind you, you're going to defeat the Philistines. Okay? Does that make sense? He was very clear in his instructions, and Saul understood them very well. Here's what happened, though. Saul had run into hiding. All his troops were in hiding, and uh, things were looking tough. I mean, imagine for a week they were hiding in caves. And they got to the seventh day, and Saul looks up, and there's no Samuel. He hasn't come yet. Seven days are up. So in a panic, he says, oh my goodness. You just imagine, he's saying, maybe Samuel's not coming. Here's what I'm going to do. He asked for the priestly garments that were set aside only for the priests. And he went himself and offered the peace offering and the sacrifice offering before God. Now, here's what's really important to understand. That was an extreme violation of God's order for the people. God had laid it out clearly um, when, when he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt that this was a job only for um, priestly duties. And Saul was a king. He was a man of war. This wasn't for him to do. Now, imagine this story. I, I just love this book because there's so many interesting turns and dra- dramatic moments in it. It's like a movie, really. Um, while he was jumping ahead of Samuel... And Samuel was running a little late. He's offering the peace offering. And just imagine, at that moment, Samuel arrives. Catches him red-handed doing what he's not supposed to be doing. And what's Saul's response? Saul's response is, Samuel, you were a day late. What, What was I supposed to do? This job had to be done. He was making excuses. And he was he was just saying all these random things without acknowledging okay, I messed up here. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have offered the peace offering. And Samuel comes in that moment and gives Saul a hard rebuke. This is what Samuel said to Saul. You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord 
would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Samuel is saying, the Lord was going to set up your kingdom as your inheritance forever. And then right here, Samuel speaks prophetically. But now your kingdom, because of your disobedience, shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself, and this is a a well-known phrase, a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept the command that the Lord gave you. So here's what's happening there in, in 1 Samuel 13. It goes from things are right and high for Saul and the people of Israel to Samuel coming and saying, Saul, because of this act of disobedience, the kingdom that you would have had forever, it would have endured forever, is now going to be broken and it's going to be given to another ruler. Now, you got to understand, this was a hard moment for Saul because when you got set in as king, that is a legacy piece. Think about this. This would pass down to your son and your son's son and your son's son's son and on and on and on. And Samuel is saying, because of this act of disobedience, that has been broken. There's, there's a whole teaching there of, about obedience to God. There's a whole teaching there of why this was so significant. This, this sin against God was so significant that that would be the punishment. That's not the one for today, but there, there's so much there, and we're going to keep moving through the story. So then right after that, that's 1 Samuel 13. We see just a few things happen, and then um, we see more disobedience for Saul. Saul, Saul is starting to lose his, his power a little bit here. He's starting to lose the reliance that people have on him. He's having some military defeats. And it just becomes more and more clear. And Samuel actually prophesied to him again, you're going to lose your kingdom. It will not endure. And, and things are starting to get really tough for Saul. And Saul, Saul is starting to slip a little bit as, clean, as king. Then in 1 Samuel 16, so congruent with this story, we see a, a spot where God tells Samuel, Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. Now that should ring a bell to you, Bethlehem. And he goes to the house of Jesse, and he finds Jesse has all these sons. And this is where he goes through all all the sons, and he says, hey, I'm going to anoint one of your sons to be king. So he goes through the oldest son, and he's looking good. and, And the Lord says to Samuel, Samuel, I don't look at the outside appearance. I look at the heart. That's Some of you guys have heard this story. And he goes down all the sons, and he finds David, a shepherd out in the field, the youngest son that dad didn't even bring in the house for this. And, and, he, and he anoints David as king. What a moment for a young man. And then the story goes on that, that Samuel, uh, um, Samuel leaves that place, and soon after, David's musical giftings start to arise to the point where he becomes the musician, think about this, the musician that plays for King Saul personally. He comes to King Saul, and and because of King Saul's disobedience, he started having these spirits come on him that would torment him with anxiety, depression, fear, rage. And and these spirits would come on him, and when David would come and play his music on a harp, these spirits would, would leave Saul and leave him alone. So David took up that job. He was a musician. And, and, and Saul had no idea that David at that moment had been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. 
when he lost his kingdom. From there, and I'm going to skip a huge story. Um, From that moment, David goes and we see the story where he arises to the moment to defeat Goliath. Most people know the story. David defeated um, a Philistine warrior, a giant, and it's, it's, um, it's an incredible moment for him. And Saul then brings him in afterwards, and he says, David, who are you? Where are you from? Who's your daddy? He honestly says that. From whose house are you from? And so he, he's had him there in his court working for him as a musician, but he's never gotten to know him. And he goes in and he finds out, okay, you're from the house of Jesse and all this stuff. One thing to note that we're going to come back to, Saul had promised if anyone had, would kill Goliath, his, uh, that man would be able to marry his daughter. So you would become Saul's son-in-law if you could defeat Goliath. That was a promise that he used to try to motivate his warriors. And David stepped up to the challenge. So keep that in the back of your mind. David at this moment is promised to be Saul's son-in-law. He just hasn't been given his daughter yet. So it says there in 1 Samuel 18 that now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, when David had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan, remember that's, that's Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Jonathan loved David as himself. These two guys from that moment, something happened in their hearts. They became best friends. Best friends. And they would stay that way. Saul took David from that day and didn't let him return to his father's house. So now he was going to work for Saul full time. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And here's what Jonathan did. The, the, the verse says Jonathan stripped himself of his robes, so he took his royal robes off as prince, and he gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, recognize this. It sounds like, Jonathan, what are you doing here, taking your robe off, giving it to David? Here's what is so significant in that moment. Jonathan realized what was happening with Saul. That Saul was not going, his kingdom was not going to last. And as Saul's son, initially, Jonathan should have become king. He would have had the right to become king. But in that moment, when David defeated Goliath, Jonathan saw the gifting in David. He made a covenant with him. And in giving him his robe, he recognized that David would be the next king of Israel rather than him. Now think about this. This is the crown prince going to another man and saying, my heart is knit to yours. I'm going to give you this freely. So Jonathan must have had some understanding here that God's hand had come off of Saul and, and the anointing was off. And instead of fighting it, he handed this off freely to David and said, David, you're going to be the next king. So after that happened, after Jonathan did that, David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. So he was leading his army. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And then a really interesting turn happens here. 
It happened as they were coming, when David had returned from killing the Philistine. So after David and Goliath, there was a processional through town. And here's what was happening. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played this. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now think about how that would feel for Saul. Saul's the king, and this young boy comes in. You just saw your son give him his royal robes to say, hey, you're going to be the next king. And then you go out to celebrate the victory, and the, and the ladies in town are saying, hey, Saul, I can imagine the tune, Saul has slain his thousands, and Dave and his ten thousands, right? Okay, that was horrible. <laughs> but like, they were, they had some song, and they were saying, hey, Saul's good, but David is better. Now, David wasn't leading these songs. These were the women of town. David hadn't done anything wrong here, okay? But Saul responded to this, as you can imagine, in a very angry way. And it said, then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. A young boy had come in. He was anointed to be king. Saul didn't know Samuel had done that. But from that day on, Saul suspected that David would be the next king. And that turned Saul's heart on David, even though he had just delivered him from the Philistines. Now, David was a warrior and a cultural icon, but he still had his role as a musician. So in that role, one day after this happened, David was back in Saul's kingdom playing his harp. And Saul had that moment of rage arise and say, hey, he's going to be the next king, not on my watch. And he actually took a spear while David was playing his harp And he threw it at David, trying to pin him to the wall. He tried to kill him. This happened a few times. And David ran for his life. I mean, if the if the king throws a spear at you, you can imagine he's coming after you in full force. Ran for his life. Next thing that happens, Jonathan comes to Saul. Are we following the story here? Everybody doing okay? Jonathan comes to Saul and says, Dad... What has David done wrong to you? He has only delivered you from your enemies. Why are you so angry at him? And and Saul came out of that, and it's like he came to his senses, and he finally decided, you know what? I am not going to kill David. He even said this to, to Jonathan, as the Lord lives, so he swore on God's name, I will not kill David. Jonathan went and told David, and he said, okay, buddy, my best friend, you're good, Davy. You're good. You can go back and serve in, in this kingdom again. He's not going to kill you. He promised. So I'm certain you're good. He went back. What happened after that was um, after a while, David went back out to war. He had more victory. He came back. Ladies were singing the song again. And, and Saul got upset again and tried to pin him to the wall again. This time, Jonathan didn't hear about it, though. And, and David ran, and he went to Jonathan, and this is what we see happen, and this is where the crux of the story is going to happen and where I want to land as we, um, as we pull this story out of 1 Samuel. 
David fled and he came and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What's my iniquity? What have I done wrong to Saul? And what is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? And Jonathan said, far from it. You you won't die. Behold, my father does nothing great or small without disclosing it to me. So he's saying, hey, if my dad wanted to kill you, he would have told you. Chill out. That's what he's saying. Jonathan's saying that to David. But David vowed to him. He said, your father knows well that if I have found favor in your sight, Jonathan, and he has said, don't, then he said, don't let Jonathan know about this. So he's saying, Saul would not tell you about this because he knows you're loyal to me now. But as truly as the Lord lives, this is what David said to Jonathan. There is hardly a step between me and death. I mean, this is a great warrior, David. But in that moment, he is saying to his best friend, Jonathan, Jonathan, I feel like I am just a step away from death. Your dad is coming after me and he is coming after me in full force. So Jonathan and David hatched this plan. An amazing plan, an incredible story. So in this moment of fear, Jonathan says, all right, I hear you, David. You're afraid. I've never seen you afraid is probably what he's thinking here. So I'm going to listen. Whatever you say, I'll do it. So David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is a new moon, which is a Jewish holiday that they would get together and celebrate. And I ought to sit to eat with the king. So what's happening here is David has an RSVP to be at the king's banquet, to sit next to him at the head table as his leader in the military. So they should be sitting side by side at the celebration in Saul's kingdom. And he said this, if your father, Jonathan, if your father misses me, then, then tell him this. And he tells him to lie to his dad. He said, tell him that David earnestly asked to leave so that he could go to Bethlehem to celebrate with his family, which would be a custom then at that time. And if Saul says to you, Jonathan, it's good, David can go, then you can know that Saul's not trying to kill me. But in that moment, if he's angry, you'll know that he's decided evil in his heart. You'll know that he's decided that he's going to kill David. Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers harshly? So they have this moment of, okay, there, Jonathan, you can figure out if your dad's trying to kill me or not. But how are you going to tell me? Because you've got to realize Jonathan and David are very famous figures. Here's the crown prince, and here's the leader of the military. If they go out in the city, people follow them. There's paparazzi, okay? And so they hatch this plan, and, and they go to this field, a field that apparently they'd been to before, and, and Jonathan tells David this, David, you go and hide behind this big boulder in this rock. And after the festival in three days, I'm going to come out and I'm going to come and say, hey, dad, I'm going to go uh, do some target practice and I'm going to bring a servant out with me. And he said, this is what I'll do. I will shoot a few arrows. And if I yell to my um, servant, hey, go pick up the arrow. It's not that far away. You'll be OK. Then you can know, David, while you're listening behind the rock. That everything's clear and my dad's not planning to kill you. But if I say to my servant, go way off. I shot it way far away. Go get it. It's way away. Then you'll know that is code word that you need to run far away because my father is trying to kill you. Does that make sense? Interesting plan. 
So at that moment, David and Jonathan make a vow. Hey, we love each other. We're best friends. We're going to follow this together. So the day came. Saul was there at the festival. Jonathan was there too. David's seat is empty. And Jonathan says, hey, I forgot to tell you, David asked if he could go to Bethlehem. And Saul responded, as David expected, in great anger. This is what Saul's response was. When he realized that David was not there, he he realized right away, hey, I know my son and David are best friends. And this is what he actually said to Jonathan. Then in Saul's anger, he burned against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse woman. Now, there's a modern interpretation of that. That is what Saul said to David. I'm sorry, to Jonathan, to his own son. I don't know why he had to bring mom into it, but he did. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do you not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse, David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? And he's saying this. Do you not realize this guy is going to be the next king and take your spot as prince and the next king? At that moment, Saul actually does the spear thing again, just like he did to David. And he tried to pin Jonathan to the wall. Kill his own son at that moment. It didn't work. Jonathan fled. And in that moment, Jonathan went out to the field. They did as they planned. He shot an arrow, long, far away, yelled to his servant, it's going a long way away. Run far and go get it. And David knew he had to run. But in that moment, they had a little change of plan. And because they were best friends, Jonathan sent that servant away. And he went behind the rock and he embraced David. And in that moment, they made a vow that David would be king and they would serve together. And the next period of life for David was incredibly difficult because Saul was coming for David and it was no more games of throwing spears. He brought his full military force and went after David in a full manhunt. And besides one more time, that is the last time these best friends saw one another. There is one more time they saw each other though. A few years later, three chapters later in the book of Samuel, in 23, David was running from Saul, hiding in the wilderness. And you can imagine, David was in a time on the, with this manhunt coming after him of real discouragement, of doubting the promises of God in his life, and doubting the call to be king. I mean, he had been on a manhunt now for years. And Jonathan did this incredible thing as a best friend. And he went in search for David because he knew he'd be discouraged. And Jonathan went up and he went and found David hiding and he encouraged him in God. And thus he said to him in 1 Samuel 23, 16 through 18, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you and you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you. And my father Saul knows that also. He's saying this, David Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. God has a call on your life. And Saul, my dad, is not going to be able to stop it. Think about that. In David's darkest moment, his best friend sought him out and encouraged him. So all of this, I just want to tell this story today to, to, to put in a great lens this incredible friendship that David and Jonathan had, and then reflect on a few incredible behaviors that Jonathan demonstrated. And the first one was this. 
And these are our takeaways for today. The first one was sacrifice. Jonathan, as a man who was a prince, could have fought David for the power of the kingdom. After all, he would have had prestige, influence, prosperity, and power. And they were supposed to be his. But Jonathan chose to sacrifice what he would have desired so that he could see the call on David's life realized. So what's our reflection here? The, the question is this. When I look around the, at the people around me in my life and my friends and the, my influences, am I seeking my own good or am I sacrificing to see God's will done in the lives of those around me? David could have been a real stumbling block to Jonathan, a real arc enemy against him. Think about it. They, they, from the beginning, would have had the same goal to be king next. But Jonathan said, you know what? I see God's call on your life, so I'll sacrifice. I don't have to have it. If God wills it, I want to see it for you. Is that the way that we interact with our friends? And even in, that's such a big call, but even in our small calls, am I seeking my own calling or am I recognizing the calling of others and sacrificing for them? Second thing, Jonathan was an incredible encouragement to his friend. Jonathan, think about this, had more confidence in David's call on his life than David did. Now, I've got some friends in my life who have incredible calls of God in their life. And I just want to remind us this morning, when we see friends who have calls of God on their life, we should be speaking and encouraging them in that. When I see my friend Jeremiah here, I just look at you. Man, I've just had such a fun time speaking God's call over Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah just started a new job, and I'm saying, yes, Jeremiah, God's call. Go for it. This is great, encouraging him. And, and, and Jonathan believed more in David's call to be king than, than David even did. Think about it. David said, I'm a step away from death. And Jonathan was like, no, man, God has a call for you. You will not die. You will be delivered from the hand of Saul. So two, encourage others in the Lord. This is our behavioral question then. When things get tough for my friends around me, Am I leaving them alone in the struggle or am I encouraging them in God's promises for their life? So there's a reflection. And, and finally, as I close, the last thing that Jonathan displayed as a deep attribute of friendship to, to David was real, tangible, faithful loyalty. And this is my call for us today, that when we have friends around us, we would be loyal to that call of God to be friends with them and building them up. No matter what the sacrifice is for us, no matter what the discouragement, God has called us to be one in his family. And when we see a brother or a sister that is discouraged or wavering, one of the greatest things that we can be to them is loyal in our encouragement in them, to them, and our support to them, and our unwavering confidence. Here's a good filter for it. As I close, when I interact with different friends and when someone has a battle am i there with them or is that the moment that they're probably not going to see me it's a good gauge of whether i'm a loyal friend or not when someone's going through a trial will i be there to support them and encourage them in the lord 
or will I be out of the picture? Let's be people as a Victory family, guys, who encourage one another, who speak truth over one another, who sacrifice for one another, and who are loyal to each other. And when we do those three things, man, the, the Spirit of God can come in and there will be life flowing through His people. And we will be a representation of Jesus in the world. In John, Jesus said this to His disciples, if you want people to know you're my disciples, they'll know it by this. They'll know it by your love for one another. Let's be a people who are loyal, encouraging, and sacrificial. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you for the demonstration that we have of Jonathan and David. Lord, I thank you for the friend that David was to Jonathan. And out of that, we see where David had an inheritance that was actually the lineage of Jesus. And that the same town where where David was born and his family was established is where Jesus came out of. Lord, I thank you for the incredible hero role that Dave, that Jonathan played in that in, in giving up his own good so that David could realize the call of God on his life. Father, would you help us to be those friends to one another? Lord, would you help us to encourage, help us to be loyal, and help us to sacrifice? Lord, as we go out of this place, would our hearts be encouraged? Would you go with us, before us, behind us, and all around us? And would your people be a light into this world? In your name we pray. Amen.